You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Great strides have been made in the treatment of acute coronary syndromes, but how do we as primary care providers solidify those gains? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Sean Goodman, Associate Head and Staff Cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital and Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto, both in Toronto, Canada, and also Co-Chair of the Canadian Heart Research Centre. Sean, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Perhaps we could start by just giving us an update on what are the newer treatments that are being used when someone presents to the ER with an acute coronary syndrome. Sure, be happy to tackle that. I think the first important thing is to stratify patients based on what their electrocardiogram looks like. That really drives a lot of our subsequent diagnostic and management approaches. And we generally classify patients with acute coronary syndromes Uh, those who present with symptoms that we suspect are consistent with an acute myocardial infarction or a suspected myocardial infarction or unstable angina into those that have ST segment elevation, which usually means that the artery, uh, the infarct-related artery is closed off. And the second large group are those without ST segment elevation, the so-called non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome population. And the reason that I make that difference or stratification is because we know in ST segment elevation, where the artery is closed off, we need to do something to uh, reestablish flow in the infarct-related artery. And there's essentially only two ways that we can go about that. One is with fibrinolytic therapy, a clot-busting medication. The other alternative is to mechanically open up the artery, and in those uh, situations, patients are whisked off to the cath lab where uh, possible undergo emergency uh, coronary angioplasty and stenting, so-called primary PCI or primary percutaneous coronary intervention. And that seems to be gaining popularity and, and the way to go of choice as opposed to the thrombolytics of late. Is that correct? Absolutely. I think particularly in the United States and certain countries in the world, and the reason, of course, is that in some places, It's very much dependent on whether you have an experienced team, not just the interventional cardiologist, but also the team working with him or her, and also that you can deliver that in a very rapid time frame. The advantage, of course, of thrombolytic or fibrinolytic therapy is is, uh, essentially any institution across the world can administer it in a very rapid time frame. The downside, of course, is that there is a risk of bleeding, in particular the dreaded complication of intracranial hemorrhage. In contrast, with primary PCI, we know that we're getting the artery open or the interventionalist does when they're doing it at the time and the risk of having intracranial hemorrhage or stroke is much less. The bleeding complications may be in the same ballpark, but of course the artery can be opened sort of right in front of one's eyes. The downside of primary PCI is that it's not necessarily easily accessible to all patients in a very timely fashion. So really, whichever strategy can be delivered in the most timely fashion to the patient to get the infarct-related artery open is the best way to go. And in the United States and certain countries in the world, there's definitely been an increase in the use of this particular approach based on really solid evidence. There was a meta-analysis a couple years ago that uh, looked at all the trials. Most of them are sort of small to modest in size, so they pooled all this information together where fibrinolytic or thrombolytic therapy was compared to primary PCI, and primary PCI definitely came out overall as the winner, and that's indeed why we're seeing an increase in the use of that particular reperfusion therapy. And when you say came out the winner, less reinfarction, less uh, heart failure, Yeah, definitely on those fronts, 
it, it took the meta-analysis or the combination of the trials to actually show or suggest that there was actually a reduction in mortality as well. But indeed, myocardial reinfarction and congestive heart failure, complications like development of cardiogenic shock, uh, all of those things came out in a more favorable fashion, again, with less risk for intracranial hemorrhage compared to fibrinolytic therapy. But timing is also very important. If, if you had a patient, you could get the team in and X number of hours versus give thrombolytics right away might go for the thrombolytics? Right. I think it's really important to have a systematic approach at uh, each institution so that we're not as uh, uh, physicians uh, sort of uh, stumbling around trying to decide, well, which, uh, which, which direction should I go in? Because it really is, as you point out, dependent on the timing. And there are excellent guidelines, national guidelines and international guidelines uh, that give some reference to healthcare providers as to what those sort of magic time frames are. In general, uh, what we say is that uh, patients uh, should be getting fibrinolytic therapy uh, with a sort of door-to-needle time, uh, ideally within 30 minutes. If they're getting primary PCI, the door to balloon, in other words, when they make their first medical contact, to the time that the balloon is actually uh, being blown up in the artery and restoring blood flow should be no more than 90 minutes. So working backwards from those two times or those goals or ideals, one can look at one's own institution and decide uh, with the team what is going to be the best approach, which might not be uh, the same uh, in the middle of the night or on a weekend as it may be during so-called banking hours. It very much depends on the accessibility of the cath lab and the ability to deliver that in a timely fashion. If all things being equal, that can be done definitely within 60 to 90 minutes, then uh, I think primary PCI would be preferable. In contrast, if one is going to have delays potentially longer than that, uh, or there's some uncertainty, as long as the patient doesn't have contraindications to fibrinolytic therapy, where you would buy a little bit more time from a delay perspective, or you would put up with that, uh, you should go ahead with fibrinolytic therapy. That's a good point that it may, in, in a given institution, be different depending on when the patient presents. Do you need to have a, a backup cardiothoracic surgery team if you do angioplasty? That's a great question. It's pretty controversial. There are some guidelines that have addressed this. The problem, of course, is there's very few studies that can help us uh, decide one way or the other. I think over time, uh, there is a recognition that the need for emergency bypass surgery in this patient population is very small, and even smaller these days in general where patients are undergoing any form of PCI. And, of course, some of the complications that used to happen or do happen with uh, with PCI can often now be dealt with by the interventionalist. For example, now there are stents to deal with things like dissection and, and a variety of other complications that can happen. So the success rate is much higher over time, and the ability to keep the artery open is improved uh, with uh, PCI to the point where many people have argued, not all, of course, in favor of this, but many people have argued that the rate of emergency bypass surgery, particularly in the setting of ST segment elevation MI, is so low that it's reasonable for centers, again, as long as they're experienced, to go ahead and do this even if they don't have on-site coronary artery bypass uh, capabilities. But, of course, one would have to have a good plan for those rare instances where things maybe didn't go as well as anticipated. And, of course, we have to recognize that not everybody that's taken to the cath lab, even with ST segment elevation MI, will indeed undergo primary 
primary PCI, there's a handful of patients who will end up having their artery open and will be managed medically, at least in the short term, and there may be a small handful of patients where their anatomy is such that you just can't approach it with a balloon or a stent. You might uh, try to do that for the infarct-related artery, but indeed a small handful of patients may need bypass surgery, at least for the long-term prognosis. You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Sean Goodman, Associate Head and Staff Cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital and Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. We are discussing some of the newer thinking and newer interventions in acute coronary syndromes. Dr. Goodman, there are all these medicines that I read about and don't have a lot of use for as an office-based physician. Can you take us through some of the things that are medications that are being used in this situation? Certainly, there are a number of antithrombotic and antiplatelet therapies that have emerged over time to deal with both non-ST elevation, acute coronary syndromes, and ST segment elevation, myocardial infarction. And again, as you point out, therapies that might not necessarily be things that primary care physicians would be using initially in their office. Now, one one example, of course, uh, that everybody's familiar with is aspirin, and that's a therapy that we use in a widespread fashion, both acutely and on an outpatient basis. But we now have antithrombotic therapies that are given sometimes subcutaneously, like low molecular weight heparins and anti-10A inhibitors, some of the time intravenously, for example, direct thrombin inhibitors. All of these things are directed at the clotting cascade or uh, as antiplatelet therapies to try to uh, deal with the acute thrombus, the acute clot that's in the coronary artery that we know is a key component uh, of acute coronary syndromes. What about Plavix in particular? Yeah, it's uh, really emerged as a fantastic medication in especially the acute setting, uh, and, and of course, uh, since it is a pill that can be given, uh, can be translated to the outpatient setting, and there's actually some fairly new information in the last couple of years that clopidogrel can be used really across the whole spectrum of acute coronary syndromes. The first studies were in denting, of course, and we know that dual antiplatelet therapy, both acutely and then chronically, is very important to make sure that the downside of stents, stent thrombosis, does not occur. So we need both aspirin and clopidogrel or Plavix uh, to be used in in those particular settings. Then studies were undertaken uh, in patients who had non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome, so-called non-QAVMI and unstable angina patients, and those patients benefited from a 300 milligram loading of clopidogrel, which is uh, four of the usual tablets, followed by 75 milligrams or one tablet per day out to uh, one year's time, and those patients benefited not only within the first 24 to 48 hours, but they continued to benefit over the course of the year. And then in the last couple of years, as I mentioned, there's a couple of uh, studies, one that was North American-based and one very large study that was done in over 45,000 patients in China with the spectrum of acute coronary syndromes where clopidogrel was given compared to a placebo. Now, in the Chinese population, they were a bit concerned about giving a clopidogrel load. So in contrast to the previous study that I mentioned, they only gave 75 milligrams, but they showed a mortality advantage, an actual reduction in death happening in mainly ST segment elevation myocardial infarction patients, even within the first 12 hours. And of course, that benefit was continued or was not lost over the course of the first month that they gave the therapy. So we've really seen an emergence of this particular therapy in the whole spectrum of acute coronary syndromes. And then things like Integralin, which I apologize, I don't know the generic uh, names. Sure, Eptifibotide and Terofaban, which is also known as Agristat, and uh, Abcixumab, Reapro, 
course, you have to be a linguist these days to be a cardiologist <laughs> to get your uh, your mouth around these things. Those are the glycoprotein 2B3A receptor inhibitors, and those are therapies that deal with the final common pathway of platelet aggregation. So we know when there's a plaque rupture or an erosion or an ulceration that leads to an ultimate coronary syndrome, an acute coronary syndrome, we know that platelets get activated and they stick to one another and they stick to the site of injury to try to heal up things. But of course, inside a, a coronary artery that's only a few millimeters in diameter, the sort of over-exuberant response of the body may be to form a clot that actually ends up occluding or partially occluding the artery. So therapies like the 2B3 inhibitors have been shown uh, to make platelets less sticky uh, to one another and to the site of injury and therefore have a role, particularly in patients who are undergoing some type of percutaneous coronary intervention like angioplasty and stenting. There's no question that when you blow up a balloon or a stent inside an artery, if you didn't have an acute coronary syndrome beforehand, you sure do afterwards. You rupture the, the uh, atherosclerotic plaque, and this sets into motion not only the clotting cascade, but also a platelet adhesion aggregation. And so these 2B3 inhibitors, these intravenous therapies, have uh, been very effective uh, in the management of patients with acute coronary syndromes, and again, particularly those who go on to have a balloon or a stent placed in their artery. I want to thank Dr. Sean Goodman, who's been our guest, as we've been discussing some of the updates in the acute management of acute coronary syndromes. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.